0: Well, one of the great privileges of being able to do what I do and what a lot of you do is I get to make new friends. And over the last year, I've really gotten to know this guy, Mark Clark. And uh, Mark actually pastors a church in Vancouver that has quickly become one of Canada's largest and fastest growing churches. They reach about 5,000 people on a weekend. And they're going to steamroller across Canada. They're opening locations in Calgary, Alberta, and Montreal, Quebec, And if you know anything about my little country, Canada, you know it is more postmodern and uh, more post-Christian than many areas in the U.S. In fact, if you hang out in the Pacific Northwest or New England, you kind of have a Canadian mindset. You get that. Like 5% of our population is going to church, etc. And, you know, when you think about the the mindset of the next generation. You know, Barna's written an awful lot about sort of the the millennial mind and and the post-Christian mind. Um that is Canada. And so what's incredibly remarkable is, you know, a church of five thousand that's growing with thousands of young adults is pretty cool, no matter where you are. But in Vancouver, that's nuts. Like it is it is great to see what God is doing. And Mark uh, has become a friend. He spoke at a conference that I hosted recently and has spoken actually in different places across the US as well. But um, he's got a brand new book called The Problem of God. And what I love about it is it is really apologetics for that generation, for post Christian, post modern people. We spend a lot of time talking about like sex as an apologetics, like, you know, because a lot of people just get turned off by that. So I think you're going to love today's guests. And Mark is a leader you've got to get to know. His book releases this month. And you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Um, There'll be details, you know, at the end of the podcast and the whole deal. And of course, we got the show notes. So pretty excited about this episode. Also, with everything that's happened over the last little while with Eugene Peterson, man, I I really felt bad about that situation. If you've been following that, Um, I interviewed Eugene a couple of months ago and his episode is coming up next week. So I am super excited about that. We obviously talked before the whole story broke about his position on same-sex marriage and his retirement from public life. And of course, he clarified what he meant by that. But a wonderful conversation with Eugene Peterson. To make sure you don't miss it, just hit subscribe and, you know, we'll we'll take care of it. I know for a lot of you, uh, you are moving into your peak season. August is like back to church for a lot of you. And so here's a question for you. Do you have your volunteers trained? Uh, for some of you, that's going to happen in September or October, but like a lot of churches just struggle to get all their volunteers trained. And I know even at Connexus church, like we're going to try to onboard dozens of adults because our kids' ministry is expanding. We're doubling our student ministry. We've added new preschool rooms, and that means more volunteers. So, how do you do it? If you haven't heard of TrainedUp.Church, you owe it to yourself to go check them out. They've got packages for churches of every size and every budget. So, for example, if you want a done-for-you solution, they've got it. Like, all the training videos done. You don't have to do a thing. You can send your volunteers to a site that's geared to your church. Or, um, let's say you want to do your own training. Well, you can do it, upload it to their portal, and you can actually probably train 100% of your volunteers that way. Or, uh, let's say you want to do it, but you don't have the gear. Well, they'll rent you gear. Like, it's incredible. So, go to trainedup.church, check them out, tell them I sent you. And also, um, hey, if you really want an honest assessment of where your church is at, have you figured out what Tony Morgan has got going on over at theunstuckchurch.com? You need to go check that out right now, because, you know, a lot of times, let's be honest, as leaders, we're kind of a bit deceptive about how we think things are going. And here's, here's, here's what's true. I know it's true of me, and I know it's true of a lot of leaders I know, we either think it's going better than it is or it's going worse than it is. And very rarely do we get it right. And one of the ways you can figure out how healthy your church is and where it is in its life cycle is to take the free assessment at theunstuckchurch.com. There are seven distinct phases, and all you need to do is figure out where your church is at, and then you can kind of recalibrate from there. So make sure you check out theunstuckchurch.com. And uh, hey, thanks for being on this journey together. I hope you have enjoyed your summer. I have been doing a lot of boating. We got a boat this year and it's, uh, haven't had one for a year or so. And it's been a lot of fun and doing some biking and, uh, eating ice cream. So I'm going to continue to enjoy summer. Our, uh, our real fall kicks in in September. But, uh, for those of you going back into ministry this month, man, I'm with you hundred percent. And, uh, this is going to help a lot. Here's my conversation, uh, with my friend, Mark Clark. Well, I'm excited to be with my friend Mark Clark today. Mark, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. Good to be here with you, Kerry.
0: Hey, so you're in Vancouver. I'm in Toronto. Uh, We got a few Canadians listening and a whole bunch of Americans. And I think this is a Canadian church leader that every American needs to get to know. Mark's a world-class leader. I love the way you speak. Has anybody ever told you this? Because we've sort of struck up a friendship over the last year. You sound like Vince Vaughn. Have you ever heard that? Really? Yeah. Is that <laughs> like a good funny. thing or a bad thing? Or is that pretty awesome?
1: Yeah, that's a good thing. No, that's a great thing. I grew up uh, memorizing Swingers and Maid <laughs> and, uh, you know, all the Vince Vaughn. And he's all improv, which is, you know, mostly me uh-huh. too. So stun the spot. Just a little bit of Vince Vaughn in yeah. there that, that Right. I that's hear, funny. I, Mark's got I a great,
0: not, yeah, not, yeah. a great style of preaching. And Mark, you've got a really amazing story. I mean, you're a pretty unlikely pastor. So give us Because this is just this is very unusual, at least in the leaders that I've met. So uh, talk about how you became a Christian and then uh, some of the challenges you've had too. just even with conditions that you struggle with um, leading a, a massive church.
1: Yeah, it's uh, my parents. I uh, was raised in a total non-Christian family. And I like to illustrate that by uh, sharing the idea that my dad um, actually, you know, named my brother uh, and he, with one T. His name's Matthew. So he wouldn't be biblical. And then he named me Mark yeah. four years later. So literally never opened up a Bible. I
0: Mark was the next so. book.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah what is what is this? I don't know. So, uh, so no Bible, no church, no Jesus, no prayer, nothing in my home at all. First time I uh, walked into a church, I was 19 um, and felt called into ministry the same year. Became a Christian about a year or two before I ever walked into a church and just kind of had to open up the Bible and figure Christianity out for myself, but also explored it, as my book talks about, uh, through kind of a rational, a very rational, scientific, philosophical, historical thinker. And so I wanted Christianity to actually make sense and be rational. So I went through an exploration of studying all those different angles to see if Christianity was something I wanted to do. Um, and so my parents got divorced when I was about uh, eight or nine. And that mm-hmm. trauma, the doctor tells me, created a situation where I got Tourette syndrome, which is the kind of thing where you get all kinds of tics and habits that progress. And it, uh, that developed into obsessive compulsive disorder. So I would literally be the kind of guy who would like swear to myself, like just, you know, just randomly swear in classrooms and whatever. And you tend, you know, the one job you're not going to have in life is being a, a preacher if you throw right. F-bombs. You start dropping you know, the F-bomb in the middle of your <laughs> (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It just tends not to, you know, take off or, or it's the rated R church that you can't get into. Uh, and so, uh, anyway, so it's kind of crazy that God took me from that, called me into ministry when I was 19 and, uh, just started preaching and pastoring and went to school, uh, got a desire for academia and really wanted to become, um, a scholar and do a PhD at Oxford. And so there was a step to get there was to move out to Vancouver and go to Regent College and get a master's degree in New Testament. And while I was here, I just felt called to abandon the PhD and to start a church. So I was uh, working at a church at the time that sent me... With about 30 people. We started out in this little gym, I actually started out with about 16 people in my townhouse and the church gave me a, a few more. And we went to this gymnasium and just started preaching Jesus and saying, Hey, let's try to reach culture and reach some people. So, uh, over the last seven and a half years, that small group of people has grown to about 5,000 people across, uh, three different locations. And we're just about to plant two more locations, one in Calgary and one in Montreal Very early on, God gave me a vision to um, plant like across our country and to to do something that was really impact our country. So I know a lot of Americans have no idea where Calgary and Montreal are, but just, you know, they're, they're across the, yeah, yeah. it's like LA and New York.
0: But it's sort of, it's sort of like what Hillsong is doing, just picking, not necessarily cannibalizing your existing campuses. So though you have two or three locations in the Vancouver area, uh, but like Calgary's, how many miles away is Calgary? A thousand? A
1: lot. A lot. A lot. A lot. And Montreal. And then that's the other side of the country. So, yeah. There's a lot of cool yeah. stuff
0: going on in Montreal. Like Josh Gagnon, who's been a, a guest on the podcast. Yeah. He's yeah. got Talk a site in Montreal now. And he's an American, like New England pastor. At a, a, well, right. he's, he's in five states, I think, now. And yeah. um, so this is kind of cool to see the multi-site movement start to roll national, not just regional, which is which yeah. is great. And in our country, man. Where what, 95% of people don't go to church? It is so needed and so welcome. And Mark would be leading, I think in the US, one of the, you know, a very fast growing large church, but in Canada, one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing, and and certainly one of the largest churches in our country, which is which is great. And, you know, I love that combination. And it shows in your new book, The Problem of God, of like almost keller like academia. With uh, with 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 the heart and and the street sense of a street preacher, do you know what I mean? That kind of like, it's this really, it's and it's in your preaching, it's in your communication style. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but I think God's given you a really unique gift set that uh, that's kind of cool. How did you like? Okay, so when you got converted, you kind of skipped over a few things, not on purpose, yep. but like, right. you know, you were living a pretty godless life prior to walking yep. into a church. True.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Did the whole drug thing and, you know, all the stuff that you're doing as a teenager that, you know, you don't know Jesus and, uh, got some pretty tight situations, stealing a lot and breaking into cars and stealing from parents and running and stuff with the cops. And, um, and so, yeah, first time I did drugs, I think it was eight or nine years old. And then it cycled back wow. around, uh, when I was in my teen years and it just got, got bad. But by God's grace, before it really became a thing. That could have ruined me and set me on a very different path in life. Uh, some great, you know, God kind of just interfered and did some cool things in my life, even before I was a Christian. So just looking yeah. back at certain scenarios. So uh, yeah, it's it's really amazing. But yeah, that was my, you know, my past growing up and God, uh, you know, saved me out of it and put me on a new path. So
0: So you're 19 when you became a Christian and how old when you planted Village Church? Uh, I was 29 when I planted the church. That was seven and a half years ago. So, yep. still young in your journey. Um, your approach to apologetic, apologetics is a little bit different. Mm. Describe it for us. In in the problem of God, it's it's you know I got a, a shelf full of apologetics books, but it's it's I, I admire the way you tackled it. And you've also preached that, right? You preached through most of that content at Village Church, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. Actually, we started um, preaching it in the fall. We wanted to leverage, you know, the renewed interest people have around their schedules and whatever. So, and, and we're doing it again this fall. We're doing a series based on the book. And it's basically in the past, I've taken five or six questions, the top challenges that skeptics post-Christian culture, uh, secular thinkers, atheist agnostics have against Christianity, the world I grew up in, all the questions I had, the reasons my mm. you know friends and family didn't want anything to do with God or church or whatever. Yeah. What are those? And then let's answer them. Let's speak to them. And so I remember the first time we, or second, third time we had done this, I think, um, we grew by 800 people in a week, just by offering the fact that we're doing a series and we're going to answer these questions. And those people never went anywhere. They stayed. And so we realized that, you know, th- these questions are still massively in the, in, in the mind of, of people out on the street, the regular Joe. So we got to be hitting them. Let's not a- ask and answer questions that, you know, we just as Christians are talking about that no one in the real world's actually thinking about. Let's hit the stuff that these guys actually care about and think about, and let's answer them through reason and history and psychology and philosophy.
0: The one that I haven't seen in a lot of apologetics books is sex. And you've got a whole chapter right. on sex. Um, right. I've never really thought of sex as an apologetics issue, but I totally right. <laughs> I totally get it now. Once I read it, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, this is why, you know, there are Christians who don't want to be Christians because of what they think the Bible says about sex, sure. right? Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. So yeah. talk about, just walk us through how you would handle a subject with sex, because yeah. clearly, like any church, you've got a few people who used to go to another church, but you have a ton of unchurched people, a lot of young adults who attend Village yep. Church at your locations, And sex is a huge issue for anybody who preaches or leads a church today.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's probably one of the more unique parts of the book. There's you know three or four chapters that probably no other apologetics book that uh, I've ever read has. And so it's this question of, there's a lot of scholars and regular Joe people who go, I don't want anything to do with Christianity because of its teaching on sex. Whether that's, you know, hey, I'm not, most of the time it's, hey, I'm not allowed to have sex with anybody I want. I'm not allowed to have sex wherever I want. This is a freedom issue. You know, the highest priority for us is kind of the autonomous self that can do whatever it wants. And anybody who tells me any different, you know, they're, they're holding me back. They're oppressing me. And this is some ancient teaching about, you know, husbands and wives in the context of marriage. And that's, you know, oh, God is anti-sex. And so they stay away from Christianity based on that alone. Forget any big mm-hmm. philosophical reason. Really the Bible through like,
0: any of that stuff is just yeah, like, I'm not giving up my lifestyle.
1: I'm not giving them, I want to go to college and, you know, have sex with whoever I want. So man, following Jesus would kind of suck in that scenario. So, uh, trying to give an ethic that goes, man, number one. God is not anti-sex where in the, the, the Bible, I mean, church history has kind of shown this. God wants two people to have sex when they want to procreate and have kids, you know, and that's it. And make sure the lights are off and everything's, you know, (laughs) and it's like this, like grandma, grandfather version. And that's how they picture God thinking. And so in the book I go, whoa first issue that needs to be dealt with is God is very pro-sex. No one's more pro-sex in the universe than God. He's the one who set it up. He's the one who crafted the body to have these maximum moments of pleasure. He created scenarios that are just pleasure based. They have no reproductive Mm -hmm. value. And I literally use this evangelistically. I go, don't you want to know the God who created orgasms? You know, don't you want to know that God, like, let's, let's go. This is someone I want to connect to someone who thought this up. Um, and so first off, and we got to show that God is very pro sex. And so I show, you know, the passage, tons of passages in the Bible that talk about this, where yeah. God isn't saying in the passage, Hey, make sure you have sex so you can have lots of kids. Yes. That's yeah. there. It's take pleasure in one another, you know, drink of one another, enjoy one another, all this beautiful poetry that he's telling. And it's very important a husband and a wife. And so what I talk about is the, that long, the long game, it, even in, from a societal standpoint is husband and wife together, uh, excluding mm. sex for that relationship is the best way toward our joy. And I go into a whole bunch of great information about, uh, from a secular perspective about the case for marriage and why uh, married couples actually have the best sex lives.
0: Yeah, you you you're quoting stats in there and everything, right? About yeah, married couples having better quality sex and more sex. Hundred
1: percent, hundred percent, and total secular stuff. So the so it, the the chapter blows up the whole you know Seinfeld or Friends paradigm, where you know the real good sex is when you're having you're single in the city and you're you know yeah. having sex with everybody and you're no the maximum amount of pleasure. Uh, because sex, good sex, not just sex, but good sex takes hard work and learning each other's bodies and certain things need to be, you know, you need to have certain levels of like your calm and you can, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and, 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 uh, the amount of sex and the, the, the pleasure of sex, all is best in the context of marriage, even according to secular statistics. So, uh, we, I, I just come out and say, look, God is very pro sex and the best place for it is in the context of marriage.
0: Yeah, you also attack in that chapter. You attack this idea that sex is God, right? This this whole idea that people have, where um, you know, sex is the yep. ultimate expression of right. who we are as human beings. It, it's yep. what makes us human. What's the yep. first of all? How widely held do you find that view among yep. people that you would encounter at your church? You have thousands of them in that age demographic, younger adults, and then and then how do you tackle that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think there's two levels. The one level is they're not going to obviously say sex is my God, but they, they live like it. Meaning their sexual choices, their pleasure, um, uh, is it drives their life. It drives the decisions they make, uh, whether that's sleeping around or pornography or whatever it is, it really functionally is their God. And that's Mm. key. Um, and then there's people who just, they make it the definitive issue about their identity. And so right. whether that's same sex attraction or whether that's, hey, I, I'm not gonna restrict this to marriage or I'm gonna do it this way or this way, it's the the definitive thing about themselves. And so I show them that this is not the way God intended it. It's a massive part of us, a hundred percent. It's huge. We can't deny that, but it's not the central issue of our identity. And once we can step away from that and begin to see there's a whole bunch of other orbiting factors about our lives than just our sexual identity, um, then we can have a better perspective of where sex fits in the context of the priority of our life.
0: So play this out in the context of actual pastoral ministry. I mean, Vancouver is a very progressive city. Um, The views that you express would be extremely countercultural in Vancouver, and, and pretty much yeah. in any major city anywhere these sure. days. Um, how how do you find, let's pick on younger adults under mm-hmm. 35, how are they responding to the message, particularly singles? How, how do you find them well, respond to that kind of an ethic or an apologetic? Yeah.
1: Um, I find that they respond well to it for two reasons. First, they know it's coming from a pastoral heart of experience of me literally sitting With hundreds of couples as they've gone Mm -hmm. through stuff in their life. And now they're in their mid thirties and now they're in their forties and they made these choices and these ones and these ones. And I'm able to preach from a place of, listen, I just sat down with Joe and Jane and they hit this and this and this, and they know that my heart is to see them flourish. And so I'm able to tell, as I tell in the book, stories about couples who've been married and, you know, she doesn't have as much pleasure as he does. She doesn't hit climax. She doesn't, she doesn't know. And so it's getting into those things with them and saying, why is that challenging some of their assumptions? And then two, three weeks later, these couples getting back to me going, oh my goodness, once we crack that open, now we've hit these pleasure points. Now our sex life is growing. Now we, you know, there's certain, and then I sit with them. How many times are you doing this per week? Okay. Here's (laughs) what statistically, here's what should be happening. You know, set goals for yourself because these couples aren't thinking and talking about it. And the church isn't thinking and talking about it. So I talk about it in the book. How often should you be having sex per week? If you're in a somewhat functional thing, here's some goals to shoot for. Here's some stats around what people are doing. Couples aren't talking about, you know, Carrie, when you're hanging out with your friends, you're probably not sitting around four or five, six couples and go, Hey uh, Clark, so many, how many times you guys have sex a week? see this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) Tony, what is it? You're not having that conversation. So to be able to drag it out in a book, people aren't willing to ask the question. So, once they see it, now they got something to go, okay, what about this? So the young adults are seeing that experience and going, okay, there's something here. Yeah. Uh, and then secondly, of course, uh, and this is probably more important than that is they're seeing all the theology come from the text that I, yes. what what's authoritative over me is God and the Bible and the meta narrative of scripture not me. I don't get to make this stuff up. So if I right. could just make up a sexual ethic, then I just make it up. But unfortunately, or of course, fortunately, but mm-hmm. we have an authority over us that says, no, you actually, you can't pick and choose. Here's the deal. Live under it. And so once, once someone can see that, then they see that you're not making this stuff up yourself. Then if they have an issue, they got to deal with God or the Bible. They don't have to deal with me. Yeah. It's like when I sit with a, a couple might come in, and one of them's a Christian and one of them's not a Christian. And so I'm like, okay, I can't actually, you know, with conviction before God marry you, if one of you is a Christian and one of you aren't. If you're both not Christians, just yeah, take me do that. the wedding. You know, I mm-hmm. can do that. Uh but you know, and so now, when the, when the non-Christian, I can't believe this, you're so judgmental, you know, the church is like this, and if I'm able to open up 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, talk about unequally yoked, why this and why that and what Paul meant, now all of a sudden he's got to deal with the text. He's not dealing with me because I ate some bad pizza and I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> yeah. I have a bigger authority that I have to answer to. And pointing people toward that is the key part of this, where now they walk away and they go, they, they might be jacked up mad about it, but at least they're not mad at me about it. Right, right. No, that's good to know. Um,
0: So Mark, tell me, with a church your size, how often are you counseling in a typical month or a a week? Because usually once a church gets above a thousand, a lot of pastors just bail on that. But why do you do it and what's your practice?
1: Yeah, I I certainly do it less now because we have actual legitimate registered
0: counselors like real people who who, who went to school for that. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's like PhD in clinical psychology that we hired to literally do counseling. So he's got a lineup that's three months long. So once in a while I'll do it for, you know, people still, um, because it keeps me in understanding what people are going through. Um, and it helps me to be able to connect with them and then it helps them to be be able to hear from, okay, there's someone on the stage preaching and teaching the Bible And usually it's got some evangelistic uh, measure to it for me where there's a, there's a husband or or a wife who's not really coming to the church or they're not really into it or they're not Christians and they're now married and they're having tensions and, and an email comes in and, and I just get a heart for, man, there's, there's an evangelistic angle to this where I think I could really speak into it and then I'll do it. So that's, you know, I'm not doing it as much as I used to when we were you know, uh, 500 people and it was, or 1200, it was just me. I hired my second yeah. past. and we were 1200 people. So I was definitely doing it <laughs> more than, but, uh, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great way to actually connect with people. And, and what I'm seeing are the brokenness of these marriages and, and two people who are like, man, I gotta, I gotta figure my life out. Yeah. And so oftentimes it's sex, money, communication slash conflict. Those are the three big things that we hit and deal with. Hmm. Uh,
0: yeah. in, in your book, you also tackle some of the classic apologetic things like, for example, hell, which, you know, I just find it gets harder and harder to try to convince people yeah, about sure. hell all the time. Uh, what's your approach to that?
1: Uh, my approach to it is is first, as I talk about in the book, my father uh, passed away when I was 15 and he was 47, um, died of lung cancer, never even called me and told me he was sick. The, the hospital wow. called and said, your dad just died. And I'm like, I haven't talked oh, to my dad, what are you talking about? So I show up at his funeral and I'm sitting there over his casket. I'm 15 and I'm asking the big questions of life and destiny and morality and existence and meaning and all the rest of it. But here's the, you know, I face, so this is not a, a hypothetical question for me. I'm not coming from mm-hmm. some Christian family where everybody, you know, my great, 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 great grandfather was a pastor and everybody since has been Christian and gone to heaven. I'm dealing with a father who likely, I don't know what went on in his heart, but if you didn't become a Christian is in hell. So this isn't some hypothetical yeah. thing. So oh, wow. my, my desire would be to go, okay, this doesn't exist or mm. let's take an annihilationist view or one day it's all going to disappear or a universalist view where, yeah, they get you know, a purgatory view where they dealt with it for a few years and now they're all in heaven and so on. The problem is again, coming back to the authority, I keep bumping up against the Bible, yeah. which doesn't really let me deal with it that easily. And, and so what I find with people is there's a couple things about it. A obviously Jesus taught about it, it's biblical. So then we got to figure out what to do with that. Secondly, I find that, um, if you look around the world, really the only people who have a problem with hell are people who are sitting in the Western world in comfort, in the suburbs, mm-hmm. drinking lattes at Starbucks going, you know, here's a part of Christianity. I don't like, I don't like a <laughs> God who has wrath or likes to judge or whatever. The problem is. You go to some village in Africa where the kids and women get raped and murdered by men who burn down a village and take off. Then you walk up to those people and say, by the way, the men who did this will never, ever feel the justice of God in their life. And all those people in the village go, well, I don't want a God like that then. I refuse to worship a God if there is no hell, if there is no judgment. So who are we to sit in our you know, enlightened mind around drinking our lattes, figuring out which doctrines we like and we don't like when the re- 80% of the world would say, hold on, if you get rid of that doctrine, I'm out. Because it's a priority for me that God would be a God of justice. Now, we're not supposed to necessarily mete out death and judgment in the present. That's the whole point of Romans 12. But once you have a God who is going to, as Miroslav Volf talks about, now you don't have to carry out in the present. So actually, hell is a deterrent toward violence in the present. It's a deterrent toward us thinking that we need to get our justice now. Because there is going to be justice one day. And so not everybody's going to have the exact same eternity. Not every, you know, every guy who committed genocide in the world is just going to go to, you know, it's just how offensive is the idea? You walk up to a, you know, a Palestinian and a, and a, and a, and a Jewish guy and a Muslim, and say, oh, don't worry. We're all going to end up in the same place holding hands. You know, it's like, yeah, what? What happened to my <laughs> family that died for this? What do you mean we're all going to end up? What are you talking about? Most of the world actually finds it completely offensive to say there's no hell. Or there's no mm. judgment of some sort some vengeance some justice that's going to be meted out on everybody in the end but we somehow came along and, and wanted to change it so the first issue is bible second issue is just not being ethnocentric in our thinking and then third is to realize it actually justice has to be served and we all want justice mm. if a guy cuts in line we want justice i get pretty jacked up angry about people who cut in line we all have this sense of justice that stirs in us, and the doctrine of hell really tries to explain, okay, here's what God's going to do on an infinite, eternal basis about you know wrongdoing, evil, sin that's not dealt with uh, through the blood of Christ. But doesn't the whole
0: thing, like we, when you talked about it, you have a Jew, a Palestinian, you have a Muslim, and they're like, what? What is this thing about? We're all going to be holding hands into the future. <laughs> doesn't that play into the Christopher Hitchens and so on who would say, well, you see— religion really is the source of all division. It really is the source of all um, bad in the world. Uh, how how do you tackle that?
1: Yeah. Well, you go back into history and you show that, you know, Christopher Hitchens' deduction conclusions uh, were worse. Uh, hmm. If you go, go through the numbers of, you know, Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot and, you know, the Cambodian stuff and Khmer Rouge and all of, I mean, you see what atheism did and you add up, all the, and I actually talk about this in one of the one of the chapters of the book, uh, the chapter on exclusivity. And I talk about if you add up all of the deaths, the religious driven deaths throughout history, and you compare them to the the deaths that were brought about through atheistic worldviews, it's not even close. Like hmm. not even close. Like you just take this century alone. So Hitchens' conclusions are actually worse because now you're removing any kind of well, there's a million reasons why atheistic conclusions drive uh, you know, genocide and 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 mass killings like Stalin's and the Khmer Rouge and Hitler and so on. But um but so the reality is is atheism's not going to be a good answer to that uh, because yeah. we always transcendentalize something. So if we don't transcendentalize God and think there's some moral fabric and framework through which to do stuff, then we're going to transcendentalize, transcendentalize money or the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, nationalism, power, you know, sexual identity, whatever it is, we're going to make it God and it's going to drive what we do on a, on a microcosm and, you know, macrocosm of whole nation states getting together and being driven through certain things. So, um, yeah, I just don't think atheism is a great answer. It's, it's no better. And, and religion for the most part, yeah, of course there's disagreements and they're going yeah. you know, to fight about things. But what I lo- that's what I love about Christianity in the marketplace of ideas. Here you have, in the midst of all the different religions, you have a, 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 a leader whose core ethic, this isn't some peripheral teaching, mm-hmm. the core ethic is you die for your enemy and right. you pray for your enemy. And you go on a cross, and you you say it is finished, and you tell your follower to put away the sword and not kill people. How would it be then that Christianity? And I talk about this in the book. I go through you know the the witch burnings and the crusades, and I show that all of them were astraying from anything even close to Christianity, because Mm -hmm. here is Jesus dying for his enemies, and that's the most beautiful. World take take the word religion off the table. That's just that group of ideas contrasted with that group of ideas and that one and that one is the best. It's the most freeing. It's the most beautiful. Dying for enemy, never pulling sword out to cut, you know. And so you know, whatever the debates are about religion, this and that, Christianity in the marketplace of ideas is certainly the most beautiful, most freeing, most forgiving. And that's what the point of the book is. Here's Christianity is the best. Take take every religion, agnosticism, atheism, line them all up and let's see how Christianity stands out.
0: Yeah, And clearly you're there because you believe that it wasn't something you were raised in at all. One of the things you've said um, several times, and I mean, I think a lot of listeners would agree with it. I would agree with it is uh, your view is informed by Scripture, that you stand under Scripture, not above Scripture, et cetera, et cetera. And most Christians would totally agree with that. Um, there is an argument, a strand of thought that says that apologetics is changing, that uh, you know, textual criticism, for example, that this is the most widely attested um, ancient document in history, that there's, there's a growing sense among post-Christian millennials and younger Generation Z who would say, yeah, okay, that's great. So it's the most widely attested ancient manuscript in existence. So what? I still don't like it. I don't like what it teaches. I don't like that. How, how are you tackling the authority of Scripture when it comes to a postmodern post-Christian generation?
1: Yeah. Well, first you got to kind of explain that, you know, truth and actual history does matter. And uh, and, you know, that's pretty, you know, it, the, the whole postmodern idea of relative truth and relative morality so falls apart pretty quickly. Uh, I remember I used to work at uh, Michael's Arts and Crafts store. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think they have those in the States. And uh, oh, yeah, they do. Because my training video when I started working there was uh, someone from like the south. And it was like, hello and welcome to Michael's. And so then I had that in my brain the whole time. Hello. Uh, so anyway, I wear my red apron and, you know, not have a clue where anything was. And, um, so anyway, I was working with this guy and and he said, no, morality is completely socially constructed and we can't ever say just because we believe something's wrong that someone else would, that we should tell them it's wrong because they have their own beliefs. Very Canadian,
0: very postmodern and increasingly American. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I said, well, okay, Let's me, you and your sister go down to some village in South America. And, uh, you know, the people there don't believe in loving your neighbors. They believe in eating them and they grab your sister and they kill her and they put her on a you know spit and they turn around a fire and they eat her based on your philosophy. You could not say they had done something decisively wrong. All you could say is that they did something that you don't happen to like, but you're not going to project your values onto them. And I said, are you willing to live with that reality? And he went kind of in a corner and he was, I "I see your point. Uh, and so it's pretty quick, you know, if a guy, if I, if a guy's telling me, you know, he doesn't believe in, you know, truth or whatever, I'll just like, you know, chop him in the neck. And then when he tells me he doesn't like it, I'll say, oh no, no, but I like it. It's my thing. It's fine. I know you don't like it, but I like it. So don't try to project right. your values on me and I'll just keep chopping him in the Adam's apple until he gets upset and leaves. So, uh, obviously we don't, obviously we don't live like this. No one lives like this It's stupid. Right. And so, you know, the only truth is the idea that there is no such thing as is truth, that, that I, you know, that falls apart pretty, you're sawing off the branch you're sitting on. So once we come to a conclusion that no, 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 truth matters, not saying I have it just saying, let's conclude together the truth and history, what actually has happened in the past matters. Um, and we can get there over a couple coffees or whatever, but once we get there, um, then all of a sudden, the historicity of and the legitimacy of biblical text matters again. And this is the unique thing about Christianity. Again, Christianity isn't a value system. It's not a bunch of precepts. It's not esoteric teachings. It's not principles of life. That's what all the other religions are. It's mm. based on a historical moment, meaning the death and, of course, the resurrection, that if that moment is proven false, then Christianity goes away. No other religion yeah. is like that. Every other religion is just like philosophy and ideas and law and, and you can, nothing can ever kill it. But literally if they found the bones of Jesus, then Christianity is over. We go home and it's done. And so. Um, hmm. we gotta it's understand true. that. Yeah, it's 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 done. It's I remember listening to a a guy who uh, told a story that uh, there was this church and they didn't want him putting drums in the church, and so yeah. they had this big debate about drums. And the one guy got up and he said, "If Jesus knew we were putting drums in our church, he'd be rolling over in his grave." And the guy's like, "We got bigger problems. If Jesus <laughs> is rolling over in his grave, like Christianity's over." Uh, Anyway, so if that's true, then Jesus isn't primarily a religious teacher talking about esoteric principles, but it's based on historical moments. So now history matters. Um, And if history matters, then truth matters. And we got to find out what is most true. And so anyway, so I do find that when I line up the different manuscript stuff, the stuff I talk in the book where I talk about how it's the most legitimate in antiquity. It's the most legitimate manuscript The people trust it. Even scholars, secular scholars, look at the Bible, Old Testament, New. They go, man, literally, there is nothing like this thing. And it's been proven over and over and over again. Um, whether they're reading it or not, I don't know. Yeah,
0: whether they believe Jesus is who he said he is is a separate issue. But as far as yeah. attestation and reliability
1: goes. They they find, and I'm, t- I'm telling you, there were people telling us, Carrie, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, like none of this stuff was going to matter to the general populace anymore. It does. Mm. I hit against yeah. it every day. I was sitting across from a guy the other day. We we're arguing about Christianity. He's like, "Dude, there's no way the Bible's legit. The New Testament. If you could convince me the New Testament was legit, then I gotta give it a hearing. Because if wow. Jesus really walked on water, are you joking? If he did these things, which I think are all mythology and legend, as the guy's talking about uh, too, and uh, th- then, but if they actually happened, then I have to at least go. Okay, I, I actually give my life to this? And so, yeah, they were telling us 10, 15 years ago, none of this stuff was going to matter anymore. And I, and I have found whether it's my church growing through preaching that addresses these issues constantly or hitting the 10 questions that I hit in the, hit in the book and answering them, uh, they do matter and people are Hmm. becoming Christians. I mean, we've seen 1100 people get baptized in the last seven years, which in Canada is crazy. Yeah. Uh, it's a move of God. It's, it's honestly, there's good no bananas, credit, you know, yeah. that we have good bananas, no credit we take for it. It's purely God, but it's us, you know, preaching the Bible and constantly asking the 10 questions that are in this book and raising them and doing our best to answer them. And people are connecting with it and going, that's what changed my life because those are the three things I couldn't come to ever believe in God because of those things. Hmm. And you address them and they, they, they sat in my soul and I got it.
0: So interesting. I would agree that um, apologetic series, I've done a couple in the last five years, they're always, they deliver way more than you think uh, they will. So 10 issues, we won't get to all of them today. What's one or two others that you think, man, these are the the pain points or the curiosity points that that people are feeling that, that anybody who cares about the Christian faith and sharing it with people outside of it should pay attention to?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. So the the chapters are we address science, God's existence, the Bible, the Christ myth, which is, you know, the whole idea that Jesus is wasn't actually a historical figure. Because, of course, Dionysus and Horus and Mithras, they're all born on december twenty fifth, crucified, yeah. twelve, you know, fed five thousand, have all the same exact characteristics of Jesus, ergo, you know, Jesus wasn't real. um evil and suffering, hell, sex, hypocrisy, exclusivity, and the issue of Jesus himself. Mm. Um, and so I find uh, starting out with the God's existence with people, or the mm. idea that science, um, you know, negates Christianity and God altogether.
0: Yeah. Science, science is huge for people. I hear that all oh, the yeah. time. Walk, walk us time. through
1: the three to five minute version of how
0: you're tackling that with, again, a yeah. highly educated crowd in a major city.
1: Yeah. Well, the, the best thing to do is actually, you know, use science. <laughs> <So> <laughs> science over and over again is pro- the deeper it goes, whether it's cosmology with big bang philosophy. And I talk about this in the book that, you know, back in the ancient world, Plato, Aristotle, these guys, they always believed in contingency, which is, you know, something begins to exist, has to have a cause. And so we always mm. believed, you know, so what was the uncaused infinite thing? And everybody thought it was the universe. The universe was the yeah. eternal infinite thing that never had a cause outside of itself, you know, until a hundred years ago. And Edwin Hubble looked through his telescope and went, Oh, wait a minute. The actual universe had a beginning. You know, 15 billion years ago, the universe came into existence and all matter, space, time, energy in an instant came into existence and it continues to expand. And it's crazy because, the you know, random Joe thinks that space was there. And then the Big Bang kind of happened, and and the universe has been kind of going back. No, but space itself is moving. I mean, it blows my mind yeah. thinking about it. But so space is moving. But what's on the? I don't even know what, what that means. Yeah. What are, what what's is on it on moving other, into? I yeah, know. I know. That's where my brain of space, starts to melt, Carrie. I so, know. Anyways, so cosmology said no. The universe began to exist. We know when it began to exist. So if if everything that begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has to have a co- have a cause, and the, and the cause can't be matter uh, because matter began to exist. We know when it began to exist. So it has to be mind, which is beautiful because Jesus taught God is spirit. You know, in John chapter four. So you have this reason, rational. Because people go, oh, I don't, I don't want to believe in God because it's irrational. No, actually, the evidence keeps pointing us to the existence of a mind that transcends nature that began everything in an instant and the the other layer to this that people don't often understand is there are certain you know laws of physics that would have had to be dialed in to the precise point for the universe not to have collapsed back into itself and just become yeah. a hot fireball, right. But here's the crazy thing. If you keep pushing it, they talk about these hundred and Francis Collins talks about the 122 dials that would have been had to zoned into the million millionth for anything to ever come into existence, but to push it back and, and the chances of that are crazy without a mind mm. actually doing it. But there's another layer to that, which is and th- this blew my mind when I started reading about this, that those dials would have already had to have existed because if ah. they, they can't, they can't come into existence at the big bang, or they can't do their effect. They would have had to be already in working where, who, what, who put them, what's happening because they have to play their role once the big bang happens anyways. So as science delves deeper and deeper into cosmology, into biology, the amount of information in cells and DNA, like coded, you know, actual intellectual information, um, needs to be in these Darwin didn't have that. Darwin was walking around with a with a with a you know a a, a, a microscope. He would he yeah. did observational science. He ripped apart birds and looked at the way that I mean a lot of crazy, crazy amazing conclusions he came up with. but he's not dealing with DNA. This yes. stuff came along, you know, a long time after him. Now we're looking at DNA strands. We're looking at, you know, the amount of information, and so as science goes, whether it's the telescope or the microscope, yeah, the it's macro going, or the micro, yeah, yeah, it is like, man, this keeps pointing to an intelligent mind who created these things. We got to deal with this. So when I'm with my scientific friends, it's actually, and this is why, you know, Leslie Newbegin points out that that there are more atheists in 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 the humanities and the sociological disciplines in university than there are in the sciences. Because mm. in the sciences, when you're a cosmo- you know, dealing with cosmology and biology, you can't get away from it. It's like yeah. there is something there. But if you're just in the humanities, like whatever.
0: So uh, I think you're right. There's, there's a lot of people that I've met, Mark, um, at our church and beyond who are like, you know what, if I have to give up science, I can't become a Christian or whatever. And without trying to blow up your inbox or my inbox, any thoughts on how to tackle the whole seven-day literal creation thing, which I know has a whole camp, versus, uh, you know, the fifth, <laughs> is it a metaphor? Okay, you can plead the fifth. You no, can plead the fifth. How do no, you handle that? Uh,
1: well, I, I would do um, the day is yom in the Hebrew, and it means like a period of time, and an, an, an right. epoch. An eon, um, a, a, an epoch. Yeah so, yeah, so I think, yep, uh, God gave us these, these, these seven days as a, as a, as a rhythm for life. And and of course, you go back into Genesis, it's so beautiful because it's all Israel-focused, and it's what they're doing in the land, and what they're doing in the temple, and it's all this Eden's, this temple, and there's all these layers of s- such beautiful, and what the the creation order, and what it's supposed to do and be, and what that seventh day is for, and why it's important that he made us on the sixth, and Sabbath, and rest, and systems, and when you're in Egypt, and all that, I mean, there's beautiful, you know, layers uh, of what's going on, but I think, um, you know, the point is, is it, is it was from God, it was systematized, it was this he was setting up the days for us to live in a certain way but i don't think you need to push it into a stark literalism that says um hey uh it had to be a 24-hour period uh because actually if you read it there's certain things that happen after other things that uh wouldn't actually work like Hmm. you know there's there's things that were made before like the sun and there was like plants around and needed certain things but the sun doesn't get created till later. So I think there's, there's better ways to actually structure it where, uh, one day, day one, two, and three are actually like the containers. And then he actually, if you look at three, four, and five and you line them up as a parallel, they actually, he fills the containers each time. So it's like, Mm -hmm. he makes the sky in day one, but he doesn't make the sun and the moon and stuff till day four. And then he makes like the ocean in day two and he doesn't make the whales and stuff till day five. And right. then he makes the earth and then he makes man. And they're all paralleled together as containers and fillers. So I think there's more poetry going on and beauty. I mean, again, so I so I, I wouldn't push that into a stark literalism. that says, look, he must mean day in the same way we would mean it.
0: Well, and I think we have to be careful, you know, as I think through this issue and teach through this issue, issue that we don't allow the what and the how to obliterate the more important questions, which are the who and the why. And that is what's happening in the debate, is the how yeah. and the what, and the people who right. are just crazy on one side or the other refuse yeah. to ask the deeper questions. And and the question I think Genesis is ultimately designed to answer is who and
1: why. I agree with you, because that document is written as a subversive document against the Egyptian empire who would worship— I mean, here you've got mm. Egypt and Babylon, and they're going to worship the stars— and yeah. the Genesis can't goes, oh, he made the stars also. It's like right, the, right, yeah. Yahweh <laughs> God. created the thing you worship. And here's how he did it. And here's who really we're supposed to worship. Um, now, I don't think that then means that you say that you stretch it into, oh, I think, you know, there weren't really a literal Adam and Eve and so on. I think there were literally Adam and Eve. I think that's a legitimate historical thing. But um, why would you but say I, that? Well, I th- not I don't that I'm disagreeing th- with you. I'm just asking a yeah, yeah. question. Well, I, I think, I mean, other than the fact that, of course, Jesus affirms those kind of things later, and as those <laughs> and Paul, Paul does, and, so and sure. yeah, um, I, th- I, I think you have to be. There's the the genre when when you're in a particular genre, there's moments where the genre is trying to do a poetic thing, and then there's moments where it's going, no, this is actually a thing. Um And so it's trying to, it's trying to, de- of course, you know, people who freak out about this kind of stuff, well, if you, if you say that there, then the gospel falls apart, you know, or, or right. that means, you know, what is Noah not real? And so it's like, no, 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 you got to be able to ge- immerse yourself in the text and understand it so much that, you know, when it's making a point that is you know, stark literal, like, yeah, you got human beings and here's the two first human beings and here's their role and here's who they are. And they're made in the image of God and they're walking with God. Um, and then, you know, when it's flexing a little bit, it's the same with apocalyptic literature. I mean, most, most people are willing to go, yeah, you know, parts of Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and revelation, like these aren't stark literal things. When Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 and he's got a sword between his mouth, he doesn't actually, like, between his teeth have a sword. <laughs> you know, we know that. And he's a lion and then he's a lamb. He's not going to actually have hooves. This is apocalyptic literature. This is imagery built on imagery to convey a theological point. Uh, the You know, and so, so I, it's a matter of getting into that literature and understanding the flow of it. And,
0: you know, we never question it in the New Testament because it'll say, you know, Jesus was walking along the road one day with his disciples and he said to them, a man had two sons. Well, we just flipped. One was a literal event. He was walking down the road one day. Was there a man who had two sons? Well, not like, hey, look at that guy with two sons. He's telling you a story. He's telling you a parable. Um, But there have been a million guys who have had two sons and we all recognize ourselves in the story. So the Bible does toggle between genres, on a regular basis. One of the things that really impressed me, Mark, and I think people have picked it up even in the interview, is you're very, very glued to reality. I mean, the sex chapter is great. It talks, you know, specifically about the history of prostitution, why, you know, even quote uh, Dubner and Levitt in Freakonomics saying um, prostitution is actually much less common than it was 100 years ago because guys will get sex for free if they can. And guess what? People are giving it up after the the Sexual Revolution. Right, right. And then, yeah. and then you date. quote C.S. Lewis and Aquinas and so on and so forth. You're fairly well read. Is that like book research or is that something you try to carry into the um, pulpit on a regular basis? And then what does, it, like, explain the rhythms behind that because you've got a yeah. wide variety of sources.
1: Yeah, I just read a lot um, and it's based on passion and uh, I it comes into the pulpit but not in a formal, let me quote, um, Dubner and Levitt. Let me quote Gladwell right now. It's let me quote you know Bible scholar uh, Augustine mm. or whatever. Um, it it flows just as as thinking that I think if you read enough, the stuff just becomes part of how you think and how you teach and preach and and write. Um, and then you cite stuff when you know you're citing it and you're like, okay, this idea is taken from here, and you're footnoting yeah. it and whatever. But uh, so in preaching, I try not to distract the audience with a bunch of you know, I might say, hey, I got this idea from this or whatever, um, but I'm not stopping a lot and reading direct quotes. Maybe one a sermon, maybe, um, yeah. you know, but that'd be even be a lot. Um, no. So, yeah.
0: Okay. So you're a young guy, uh, married
1: three daughters? Three daughters. Yep. Three daughters. Me busy. Yep. Uh, all young.
0: Um, between yep. the ages of what and what?
1: Uh, I got a 10-year-old, an eight-year-old, and a six-year-old.
0: There you go. And, and they're trying to get uh, me to
1: get a dog.
0: Oh yeah, I've seen dog. that on Instagram. So I'm with you. Don't give in. Don't give in. Don't get a dog. Enjoy your freedom. Um anyway. <laughs> you lost that one. Um, yeah, it's done. So uh th- there's yeah. there's that and then you also lead a rapidly growing church that's expanding across the country. How do you find time to read and what is the particular rhythm that Gets you into that space where you are reading constantly because I honestly, people think I read way more than I do. I, I've always got something on the go, but it's mm-hmm. like, well, five years finished a book that was good,
1: not great. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe mean, read eight I, this year, nine. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're di- you know we're different. We're different people. As I listen to you speak, and you're an amazing communicator, Carrie. Um, you're a very Type A person. I mean, you mm-hmm. got stuff in order, man. You got because that's how you produce. You get up at five o'clock and you write and. That's how, like, I can't understand how you produce as much. Like, I'm like, how has this guy got three blogs out today with the 10 <laughs> points of being a better leader? And I can't think up two points. I haven't, like, Kerry, it's insane. But the way you do that is by organizing your life in a very structured way. I um, very structured. I, yeah. And I'm not, that's not me. I'm, I'm way more fluid. Um, yeah. and so I probably benefit a ton from doing what you do. And in fact, uh, I'm taking your high impact course, leader course oh, yeah. and trying to, trying to figure out how to structure it. Well, don't uh, let it tru- mess up st- your mojo.
0: Something's going well. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell
1: you that. But so I just find, I watch the kids jumping on the trampoline like yesterday and I'm, my wife looks over and I'm reading, uh, a, like a 1200 page book on Churchill called the last lion. Uh, oh, and cool. I'm reading that and she's like, what? what are you reading? Like the book, you need a sack to carry it around. Like it's (laughs) massive, you know? Uh, and she's like one minute she looks over and I'm reading that. And the next I'm reading some Vince Flynn nonsense, you know? So it's, uh, it's just all, it's just read, read all over the place stuff that interests me. Um, and I just, I just build it into the Kind of the normal rhythm of sitting around. I I don't I yeah. don't like I'm not like you where it's like okay I'm up from five thirty till seven twelve I'm reading, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know well, and I think good,
0: that's but. really important. You know, is is not to try to be somebody you're not. And I think this will be extremely refreshing for leaders who are like I'm a lot more like Mark. And right, right. So
1: it's like what want to go to a movie when I'm sitting in an elder meeting? It's like you know we should just back this up. I think the you know <laughs> we'll just go to the movie theater and hang out. <laughs> So, so you're pretty yeah. fluid in your calendar and pretty open. Yeah, well, not fluid in my calendar. My assistant keeps my calendar pretty pretty tight, as, as yeah. you, you know teach us to do. Um, so that's pretty structured from Tuesday. So what's a typical
0: to, week look like for you? I'm just curious. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. No, Tuesday, meetings all day. Yeah. How um, do you feel
0: at the end of it? Are you like dead? When I did meetings no, all day, I was ready for the cemetery.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't mind meetings as long as it's stuff that's like – Hey, we're working on stuff, right? So it's, if we're trying to crack Calgary, then that's an interesting meeting. If we're talking about, yeah, Yeah. if we're talking about what buckets to order that the ushers can hang out with, you know, or hand out on a Sunday, it's like, I'm jumping out the window. So I'm not in that meet, you know, I don't want to be, but stuff that's like, okay, this is going to move the dial. Um, I love those meetings and I'm, I could do those. So Tuesday's that half of Wednesday's that. um, bit of sermon time. Uh, or all day Wednesdays that, but a sermon. And then uh, f- first half of the day Thursday is meetings as well. So pretty well, all meetings, staff. But two mostly. and a half
0: days of meetings.
1: Yep. And then um, um, Thursday afternoon and Friday uh, is sermon prep. So Thursday afternoon, about 12 or 1. I'm an expositional preacher, so just through Bible yeah. books. So I open up the commentary on wherever I happened to end last week, verse 17b. And I opened up the commentary to 17 C and where are we starting? So I got about five or six commentaries laid out on my desk and that's Thursday afternoon. And then Friday, um, I try to pump out a manuscript, uh, pretty well word for word usually ends up about 12 or 13 pages. And then, um, and then I'm done, you know, five o'clock Friday, go home, hang out Saturday at 5 PM, go back up to my room, say goodbye to my family. And I get that document down to about four pages and then I memorize it till midnight. Um, and then I'm up at 5 a.m. memorizing again and preach at 8 a.m. So. Yeah, that's crazy. And you're working week of, correct? Week of, yeah. I have. Yeah. that's the only way I can survive. I can't wow. think. Like you're, you guys are amazing. Who can like write sermons a month in advance or whatever? It's like no way. It's biting no me way. right
0: now. I wrote Sundays like a month and a half ago, and I right. looked at it today, and it is like a dead fish. I'm like, <laughs> right. what was See, I thinking? I what it. was it's I like, thinking? Oh, this is, garbage i got a flight yeah. to tulsa uh tomorrow oh, so I'm, can... I'm gonna like try to resurrect it and oh, i sure think you pray more if you prepare ahead of time because you can't yeah, remember what true. you're gonna say um, true. But, but you know it's, and, and so, it's
1: yeah it's tough if something comes up you know um i'm sweating yeah
0: like what if you get a funeral or a you know a, yep. you don't do a lot of weddings i would think at this point what um <laughs> So, for in terms of your creative arts team, are they on like I know, and I won't name names, but I know someone else who leads a very large church, six, 7,000 people. And like he's finishing his message, I'm not kidding, two o'clock in the morning. And his creative yeah. arts team and production team will be getting instructions at three or 4 a.m. on a Sunday. And, right. uh, you know, I, I, yeah. I, I just, my, my team will my, quit. Yeah, I know that.
1: Yeah. So, so the way that we do it is, um, Yeah, we we basically only do really creative kind of type things um, around major series. So like the problem of God, we'll do something. And if we do something after Easter, other than that, um, the team kind of can look ahead and go, here's some themes that seem to be coming out of the verses that he's going to preach on this week. And maybe we should choose songs that some way connect to that. But they have no (laughs) idea, of course, where I'm going to go. So I could. Well, you you don't know know where you're going to go they could read the whole prodigal son parable and go, I know what to do songs about and prep them all. And I literally get to verse one. I'm like, all right, tax collectors and sinners. Let's talk about that for 40 minutes. (laughs) Like what? we never sang about, you know, so it's a bit of a, you know, for them, it's not probably the best. Um, they would love some more heads up, but we just rolled with it. They just, it all comes together. I carry, I mean, I literally learned the songs that we're going to be singing that Sunday at the meeting, on Sunday morning at 10 to eight.
0: Oh yeah. And I'm I, the same I, way I look, now. Yeah. Sometimes I don't even know the songs. I don't go to all the meetings yeah. anymore and it'll yeah. be like, we're singing. What does this, is this even yeah. like,
1: what is this? Know. Yeah. You're uh, at the audience. Going, oh, that's heresy or cut that <laughs> for the next service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's we'll be meeting age. about that's that. on That's new Monday. age. Who wrote that? <laughs> Who wrote that? <laughs> yeah. We don't sing to flowers guys. That's not a thing. <laughs> and it's always been that way. Uh, right. the worship guys do their own thing. And I do my thing and it comes together beautifully because at the end of the day, I mean, uh, we're a gospel-centered, you know, church that wants to preach about Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. And, you know, if I'm if I'm in that zone, which I am every week pretty well, no matter what passage I'm preaching, and they're singing stuff around that and doing creative pieces around that, then, you know, everything comes together. So,
0: so super nerdy question, because I remember this in the green room at our conference uh, yeah. earlier this year. You use uh, the large size iPad Pro. And what is the app? I downloaded it, but I haven't used it yet. What do you use? Top,
1: it? it's, yeah, it's called Top Notes. So top notes. I write yeah, write the manuscript out, um, save it as a PDF, and then uh, email it to myself and then open it in Top Notes. And then that way you got your Apple Pencil out and you can do all your circling, underlining, highlighting colors and all that stuff.
0: And do you walk into the message with your iPad or you just kind of freewheel yep. it, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah the you I, don't, you the don't iPads- use it a lot.
1: No, the iPad's on the pulpit. They're for uh, quotes and, um, you know, as Keller says, the Linus blanket. Yeah, in yeah. case the whole place starts to burn down and you forget where you were. <laughs> but to get there, and I love to tell, you know, talk to preachers about this because they look at, you know, different communicators and they think, oh, it's just it's – they either say it's gifting, which is, mm-hmm. you know, an interesting uh, way to shuck off responsibility – um, or, uh, you know, they're just naturally, it's just who they are or whatever. And they're winging it. And, um, uh, I like to bring them into my process because it's anything but winging it. It's, I actually, you know, it's painful. It's a it, sermon prep for me. Someone asked me this the other day. They said, do you like it? And I said, no, I actually don't. It's, it's the most painful part of my job is preaching mm. and prepping sermons. I actually don't yeah. like it. Um, and they said, "But well, you look like you're having so much fun." It's like, "Yeah, but you didn't see me at 5 p.m. Saturday when I had to walk away with my from my family and stare at the exact same four pages for four hours so I could memorize it in my brain, so I could get up and not use notes and communicate, you know, deep ideas in a in a way that's trying to be compelling and interesting to people and whatever. And to do that multiple times on it's draining. It's all it's a you know it's a process that it's just terrible. At I get times. that. It's
0: a love hate relationship. Yeah. I really do. I love, I don't know whether you find this or not, but I find like the idea stage of what I'm going to do next, and I come up with series and everything, but the idea stage is really interesting. Like I'm working on, this is July, I'm working on September. Uh, we just changed the Runaway series title to The Great Escape, and uh, it's this idea that um, escaping, your, you. Oh, I can't forget, I forget what we came up with today, but it was really good. But then I have to actually write it. And that's where it gets right. a little more complicated through the book of yeah. Jonah. I'm going to do the whole thing. Right. And then, you know, there's the last 20% of writing, right? Which is like, ah. Uh, oh, and yeah. then there's the nerves on Sunday morning about, oh, this is crap. And, you know, yeah. I, I, I overwrite. I just want to get my car and drive away. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. I almost have. It's just like, can yeah. we can we run Andy today? Can we just run Andy? That would be yeah. better. Um, yeah. You don't have that backup Good. plan yet. no. But no. anyway... Um, you know, and, and then I love having preached and I'm always surprised to see what God uses and, and other times I think he's knocked it out of the park, but you have a unique gift because I have seen your notes and I've seen you prepare and it is manuscripted. It is like, you are highlighting this and writing over top of that and like right down to it. But when you're up there, it looks like you're freewheeling it. And that's, that's a sign of somebody who really has a gift, but has honed it. Uh, when you make it look easy, it's it's a yeah, sign that you've really really hustled on it.
1: Yeah, but I like to definitely give the message that it's hours of work, and uh, in, especially in Canada, you know this too. It's you know a lot of preaching. It's not uh, it's not as quality as it could be, and sometimes I really do think it's just lack of lack of the hours. You know, Gladwell yeah. with his ten thousand hours to become a master at stuff. It's like you got to be putting in those hours, or the preaching quality won't be very good.
0: Well, I'm preaching in and out to the same church. I mean, I do a lot of conference speaking. You're getting into conference speaking. It's pretty easy to go and you know tell your best stories to a group you'll oh, never yeah. see again. Oh yeah, and yeah. use all the jokes that you know that work. And then, and then yeah. you're like, I've been doing this for 22 years. You've been doing this for seven and a half. You just can't say the same thing over yeah. and over again. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> yeah, sorry, that's true. a little like, preacher's rant for all of you who yeah. preach. Or maybe maybe it's oh, yeah. creating some empathy for preachers. Um, yep. for church staff and other people who attend church and good. leaders who attend yep. church. Mark, I got to ask you one more question. This has been a great conversation and I'm, I'm so thankful for you and for how God is using you in Canada and now beyond with this book. And you've spoken in a lot of American churches. You're good friends with Larry Osborne, who's been on this podcast, will be again. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, I think. He texted me the other day. So um, anyway, it's great stuff. But other than the grace of God, what would you... Attribute the explosive growth of Village Church, which you know in seven years has grown to five thousand people. You're rolling out locations across Canada now, and you're reaching largely unchurched, dechurched people. What would you say? You know, when you look at at as far as we can control things, some things that mm-hmm. that are best practices for you.
1: Um, well, it comes back to what we we're talking about. Um, communication is always yeah. crucial. The church cannot downplay. Um, I know you know, the missional movement, a beautiful movement about pushing the church back into the everyday um, is key to reaching people acts to people coming to faith, you know, day in and day out, not on just yeah. on a Sunday, but on a Wednesday, on a Thursday afternoon. Um, but that gathering moment, we don't want to take away from the quality of what God and the people in Canada and the U S deserve by way of that gathering. And so it should be uh, the best quality we can do We have the best message in the world and the communicator needs to work tirelessly to make that the best it can be, but also not abandon the theological integrity of that. Constantly preaching to unchurched, de-churched people, skeptics with the kind of questions that I raise in the book, those 10 questions, read those and go, how does the text this week actually speak to that? So I'm constantly, every sermon, I'm reading the passage through the filter of an unchurched person. Because over time, even if you don't have unchurched yep. people, like let's say you have a mm-hmm. congregation of 100 people yep. and you know every one of their names and you baptize them all and they're all Christians, still get up and say, now, for God so loved the world. Okay, let's stop there for a second. How do you, you know, if you're a Buddhist and you're sitting here right now and a friend b- brought you, you think when I hear read the word God, you think this. But here's why it's not that. And then you kind of do an aside for two minutes. And then, for God so loved the world. Okay, wait, in our romantic culture, we use the word love this way. But this is, you're constantly in conversation with the people. Over time, even if you know those people aren't sitting there, over time they will be sitting there because you create that culture. That's what I think is, is, is really hitting with the post-Christian culture that I exist within. And so, um, it, you know, Keller would put it, you preach the gospel constantly to the older brother and the younger brother, you know, talking about mm. the prodigal son, you got people there who are the younger brother, you know, you know, out doing their thing, atheist, agnostic, they don't care. And th- the gospel's about a father who runs out to them. And you got the older brother, the religious type who's never done anything wrong sitting in the crowd too. They've gone to church their whole life and uh, the the gospel's for them. It's a father who goes out and says, hey, come on into the party. And then he's the <laughs> one, of course, at the end who doesn't come in. And so those guys need the gospel, you know, just as much or more. Um, every sermon needs to be a call to both those groups of people. And yeah. so anyway, we attribute it to um, to that clarity, that hard work of, of worship and word and building community, and then getting people on mission and getting people serving, um, not letting people just, consume of religious goods and services, uh, doing our best to connect to culture. And it's like, Hey, if you've been a village for four weeks and you're a Christian and you're not giving and in a community group and serving, what are you doing? You're just taking up space. You're weighing us down. You need to get on mission or go back to whatever church you came from. And uh, people are like, my gosh, she talks to us like that. I got to go bring a friend, you know? (laughs) And so it's like this, this opposite of what we thought would work in Canada. You're supposed to talk and pear-shaped tones and just suggest things to everybody and we're just in a dialogue we're just hey we're just dialoguing i don't have truth i just have ideas and you have ideas and we're all the ideas and it's like what no proclaim it man whitfield wasn't <laughs> going hey we all have ideas let's all talk about it you know jonathan Pair-shaped edwards wasn't said that. that's yeah that's that's fantastic. not a you know these guys proclaimed Spurgeon wasn't up there suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. So, I think You know, and wrap- that, that
0: I want I want people to hear that. I mean, you look at what's happening in areas that are not, you know, church central, and often it's the boldness of preachers that will get people's attention. And you think you've got to tiptoe around the culture. You really don't. Sometimes you just call the culture to account and yeah the, the
1: prophetic, the prophetic uh, voice. but to do it and, and this is the balance is people hear that and then they go, okay, I'm gonna go do that and they go scream at everybody in their church but it's you not know them. Goes down to eight people because it's not there's a, there's a spirit and a heart of, and a way of doing it where people right. can see that you're actually you actually care about them. And so if you're calling out with a kind of a prophetic voice to the things of a culture and you're doing it with love and empathy, there's something different about that than the guy foaming at the mouth, fundamentalist screaming and yelling, pounding things against the table. You know, there's a way of doing it that I think you got to capture uh, the 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 spirit of Jesus yeah. while you're doing it. Uh, the grace and truth thing, right? That Andy Stanley talks about.
0: Well, and you can't be somebody else. You you know, yeah, you and I right. we're friends. We uh, admire what each other are doing at our churches. But if I try to be you, and I mean, I really admire the way you speak. I love your sense of humor. I love the way you call people out. If I do that, it comes across as just inauthentic or awkward. Or if you try to be me, if you try to, you know, hey, I got up yeah, and worked work. from 5 a.m. to 7.12, you know, you could be yeah. divorced. Now I hate all of you. Yeah. Now I hate
1: all of you, yeah. You know, or it if I try to, like you put that stuff up on the screen and you have like points and all that, like I yeah. couldn't follow points if it, you know, it's mind boggling how you do that. Oh yeah. So, yeah to well, me, it's like, it that's
0: my little Linus blanket. That's my Fair, yeah, like, well, Andy teaches yeah. that way. I've, I've, I've done right. it in different ways, but it's yeah, consistency a as a North you. Point partner. Got to be gotta you. you yeah. All right. Last thing we're coming into the home yeah. stretch. This has been so great. You know, this is part of my hope for the podcast is, you know, just these green room conversations that just happen to come to life <laughs> that, that a few people get to hear. Um, mm. Church planners, you got a lot listening right now. People who are involved in church plants, people who are leading them. Um, you've had a, a very successful church plant by all accounts. A Couple of pieces of advice. Pieces of advice for uh, church planners.
1: Yeah. Um, again, work on your communication craft. Um, yeah. You know all all leaders are going to have an influence today. And when you were
0: starting out, like right now, you're spending a day and a half on it. But when you were starting out, when Village Church was, you know, 30 people, 50 people, 100 people, 200 people, you were still really polishing your communication craft.
1: Oh, I actually probably worked harder back then than I do now. Um, Yeah. And it was, it was, because the other thing is, is and maybe, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is gospel. I don't know what you would think about this, but, um, uh, education is an interesting conversation because that's my back. So I had all this, uh, stuff, um, Mm -hmm. in the background of my life, the scholarship, the, the stuff I'd done, I don't bring it into the pulpit, but it's there. And people can tell when they're listening to you that you're kind of an iceberg and whatever you're talking about on this topic, you're like sharing the conclusions of it. Right. But it's not all you've got on that topic. There's something below the surface that people can sense. And that's, you know, for me, it was 10 years of education of literally three years of Greek New Testament scholarships sitting in libraries, um, loving footnotes, you know. So just as much as you're going to read Seth Godin and the latest how mm. to connect to people thing. You gotta be in the library reading, you know, Packer Augustine. and Grudem mm. and Augustine and Donald Blesh and N. T. Wright and these guys. And and people can tell whether that stuff's there or not. So I would say to yeah. to, to church planters and preachers, like, education, don't, don't just skip that guy ah, no, not not necessary anymore. I'm just gonna jump in and plant a church. It's like, you know what, man? Then you're gonna have four months of good sermons and you're gonna dry up and you're gonna be mm. like, I got dude, you gotta you got the long game. You got to do this for 20 <laughs> years. What are you going to talk about if you have no education? And I see guys who just want to skip the education and mm-hmm. they don't. And, and here's the thing about education. Why I'm a fan of it because it, it it's not about, it teaches you how to think. And that's yes, what's going to, that's, what's going to keep you for 20, 30 years, writing good sermons, preaching, teaching, getting credibility with other people. You have to learn how to think. Not what to think, how to think, and uh, and, and that's agree. crucial.
0: You know, I was a yeah. lawyer, as as some people know. Before I was a pastor, and people used to ask me, particularly you know, shortly after I left law, do you I ever lo- say before
1: you were a Christian?
0: Well, yeah, you know, that's Christian a whole lawyers other are like a subject. I'm married to one. Right,
1: right. I think oh, she's way yeah, right. more Good. Christian than I am.
0: <laughs> 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 Can you be a Christian lawyer? We used to have yeah. debates about There's that. There's a podcast. So. Yeah, there it is. So anyway, you know, people ask me when I started out in ministry, do you ever use your law? And occasionally, you know, I'd look at a contract or something like that. And, you know, you get trained for that. And I'd be like, yeah, from time to time. And my answer a decade into it became, you know what, I use my law every day because law school kicked my butt. I went to a really hard law school in Toronto, the law school of my dreams. Uh, My grades dropped. I was a straight A student. My grades dropped because it was just so hard. I brought them back up by the time I was done. But like, holy cow, it completely reoriented my brain. And it became the basis of how I approach content. Now, you know, I didn't know I was going to be a writer, a blogger, a podcaster, a preacher, you know, any of that. Set you up, yep. But it set me up. And that is the yep. unique frame from which I see the world. And I'm still drawing on it 20 years later. Uh, yep. So I would I would encourage that. I don't think academics are the be-all and the end-all, but I think you need the disciplined pursuit of, of just, scholarship of academics to help you really approach the subject with integrity. And then, you know, what I love about you is somebody with a grade eight education can totally read your book. Well, assuming, yeah, you could with a grade eight (laughs) education, you could read the book, but certainly hear you preach every Sunday and not feel like you were shooting over their heads. So Mark, you got any other advice for uh, church planters just real quick?
1: Yeah, I think uh, people undervalue the idea of um, starting with a very strong team. And so Hmm. there's sometimes kind of this, um, lone ranger philosophy of if I'm gifted enough and called enough or, you know, whatever, then I'll just go out there and blaze it. And, uh, people, you know, underestimate the quality of team. I started with the most amazing team you can ever imagine, uh, 16 of us. And they were all high powered people willing to serve, uh, their life away and just give their life to the mission. And, uh, they're amazing people and gifted and just we, they all had their role, you know, that kind of way Cordero figure your place out on the battleship. They all knew exactly where they stood on the battleship and we went, uh, pretty hard. And, uh, and it was, that's why I could survive, you know, having 1200 people when it was just me. Because I had all these amazing, this core late team that was unbelievable. And they would lead the people <laughs> under them and equip them and, and all that. So it was, it was an amazing team. It wasn't just a kind of a Lone Ranger thing. And, and guys underestimate that, I
0: think. Now, OK, I can't leave it there. I know we've got yeah. like two minutes to right. wrap this thing up. We've been over okay. an hour, which is great. <laughs> but like, OK, so people are like, where do I get 16 amazing people? Was that just vision yeah. casting? Uh, just give us the thumbnail on that.
1: Uh yeah no I, I I walked up to a tax collector and said get off your chair you know the Jesus? No. <laughs> thank no, you Jesus no uh, yeah he did great with that he just walked around and picked people yeah um no so I had done uh, young adult ministry at this church uh for six years and so in that setting this was a very gotcha. gracious church I mean when they planted me the church was only probably three or four hundred people and it had gone through a lot of hurt and pain. And so to hand me people was very gracious of them. And the people were at that church and they were serving and they'd been on my young adult leadership teams and they'd been on the worship teams and they'd been on the kids teams there. And so I had kind of, they were orbiting pretty closely around me. And so when I kind of proposed the vision of planting, I said, and here's, you know, the 16 people I'd really like to take with me as my leadership team. And the church gave them all to me. So that's incredible.
0: Yeah. And you know what? That's also, they had the confidence in you to be able to do that. I mean, you know, yeah. it's easy to look at that story and go, well, I'd love a church to do that. But I would guess that the senior leader of that church um, only would have done that if he had confidence in you. Okay. Well, yeah. th- you know, Mark, this is so clear to me. This is why I love hanging out with you. This is why I love being able to do the podcast. This could be another hour and maybe next time it will be. But in the meantime, (laughs) uh, you're running between meetings. And uh, I would love to, you know, for people, I know they're going to want to get the book. They're going to want to find out more about you and Village Church. So give us some interwebular um, addresses.
1: Wow. Just invent that word. I made that word up. (laughs) I did. That's great. That's That's great. Yeah. So the book is available uh, right now on Amazon, uh, both .ca and .com. Uh, the problem of God. Just type it in, in my name, Mark Clark, and uh, it's there for pre-order right now. And actually, if you pre-order it, uh, you get stuff, other stuff. There's like a, a small group guide that you can get that has questions, three or four questions for all ten chapters that you can use. Um, really, the whole heart behind the book is to buy three or four copies, give them to your skeptical non-Christian friends, and then just grab a coffee with them every week or whatever you you know, whatever you like to gather around and say, Hey, you read that chapter on science. Here, here's what I'm thinking. What are you thinking? Let's hey, you read talk. that yeah. chapter on sex or hell or whatever. Uh, so really that's how it's, you know, would work really well. So, um, and so Amazon, the website is called the problem of And it just kind of introduces me and the concept of the book. And then, yeah, I'm on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff and uh, have an author page there that you can look up, Mark Clark. So, yeah, I'm on all those uh, all those things. And the church podcast is uh, Village Church Sermons. Uh, And so we got the sermon podcast out there for and for people to listen to. So
0: So not the Village Church, just
1: Village Church. Just village church, straight that up. other church, that other yeah, church. Yeah. That's right, yeah. People, yeah, people are always like, "Oh, you're at the village church," and then and I was like, "No, it's you know." But yeah, that uh, uh, Obviously, it's a pretty famous name for churches now. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't as famous when I was thinking it up eight or nine years ago, but it is now, exactly. So.
0: Isn't yeah. that how it works, yeah, Mark? This so, has been fantastic. Yeah. I want to thank cool. you so much. Uh, just thanks for your leadership. Thanks for your friendship. Thank you. Thanks for the difference you're making. And uh, I know you've helped a lot of leaders today. Appreciate you.
1: Thank you for having me on, Kerry. I really appreciate it, man. You're doing an awesome job.
0: Well, you know what? That really did capture some of the vision behind this podcast, which is, you know, hanging out in the green room. We weren't in a green room, but you know what I mean. Uh, Just having a great conversation that kind of goes... All over the place. And that preaching detour, I don't know, for you preachers, I hope that was therapeutic. And also, I love what Mark had to say about the High Impact Leader, too, which we'll be opening again at the end of the year. You can get onto the waiting list at thehighimpactleader.com. When we open it at the end of the year, uh, you can be the first in. But, you know, we all have different personality types. And the goal in the High Impact Leader is not to actually make one size fit all, but actually just to to help you realize maximum productivity. And I got to say, one of the things that really, you know, I'm taking away from my conversation with Mark is I need to read more. And that guy, it's a pretty diverse reading menu. And uh, yeah, if you get the book, you'll see what I mean. But I mean, very convicting. And I think, you know, that combination of kind of street smarts and I get where you live and academic integrity, there's a lot to that. So Uh, Really appreciate that. Um, Hey, next week, it's Eugene Peterson, and I got 30 minutes with him. I was so grateful for that. He is a living legend and has impacted me so much. And then I sat down and had a little roundtable after with uh, Mark Batterson and Adam Weber, both of whom have been on the podcast before. And we're going to talk about Eugene's legacy and, and learning. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation that happens next week. Again, if you subscribe wherever you get your podcast, number one, it's free. And number two, you never miss an episode. So thank you to all of you who've been so encouraging. Four million downloads and counting. Remember, we're going to throw a big party when we hit five million. So spread the love. Keep sharing the goodness. And let me know what you think. Show notes are at carrynewhoff.com or leadlikeneverbefore.com. Just in the search window, search Mark Clark or click on the blog tab, and you will see them there. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to the Unstuck Group and TrainedUp.Church for being partners on this podcast. And uh, we'll catch you next Tuesday. And I really do hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast.